to stay, but um, we'll track you down and make sure you do. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. You don't have to stay. Um, but I, I just want to thank you for being here with us. We're, this is obviously the first time we've done it in this manner, so we're still working some kinks out. But thank you all for your patience. and um, It's just awesome to be here together, and I can already sense the spirit really binding hearts together. And so thank you. We have limited time until the kids come rushing back in. So let's, let's, uh, let's have a prayer together, and then we're going to share a few thoughts from the Bible. Our Father in heaven, we count it a privilege to have you as our Father. And um, we're just grateful that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. I ask that you would indeed speak to us, help us to understand your grace and your favor to us, is our prayer in Jesus' name, amen. So a few years ago, I had the privilege of weekly meeting with a group of graduate students from Dartmouth College, which is in Hanover, New Hampshire. Probably most of you know that Camille and I, we lived uh, over there in New Hampshire before we lived, we lived, we moved here. And I was invited to come and participate in a weekly book club with a number of graduate students at Dartmouth College. And most of the uh, students there were Christians. And so we would discuss some particular book. And I, I remember the first book we we read together was called Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. Probably some of you have heard of C.S. Lewis. There's a series of movies that came out a few years ago that were based on his book, The Chronicles of Narnia. Yeah, you've heard of that, Alex? Yeah. Ah, awesome. Yeah. That is fantastic. Absolutely. So he wrote this book called Mere Christianity, probably his most well-known book. And uh, as we were discussing it, we thought that everything was pretty agreeable. But then there was this one young lady who was there. And although she had a Christian background, she had a lot of bitterness and anger towards this idea of Christianity. And she had a lot of bitterness in her heart. And as she heard us there discussing all the wonderful things about God and he does this for me and he does that for me. She just could not contain herself because within moments after we were discussing this wonderful God that we were talking about, she just went into this tirade where she was just spewing like this, this verbal vomit, as it were. And she was cussing and saying, how could you believe in this supposedly gracious and awesome God? How can, you, how can you claim that there is this wonderful and holy and kind and, and merciful God? She goes, that is not the God that I know. That is not the God that I have encountered. The God that I know is messed up. Now, as we just sat there listening to her, we, we of course, didn't try to argue our, our way into uh, her belief, but you know, it was a very pivotal moment for me in my own thinking because I realized that there's lots and lots of people who have 
this understanding of God, whether they believe in this God or not. Matter of fact, some people say, I'm an atheist because I can't believe in a God who is mean and vindictive and always trying to get people to do what he wants. And he, he predestines some people to be lost and some people to live forever. I just can't believe in that type of God. You know, I want to go back in my mind thousands of years ago. Thousands of years ago. 3,500, 4,000 years ago. And I want you to picture in your mind a very, very alarming scene. There's an old man who has climbed very deliberately and slowly up a mountain. And he has gone there with his son. And he is standing over his son. And he has a knife in his hand. And he's about to thrust it into the side of his son. It's one of the most disturbing scenes you could ever imagine. You see, he is about to kill his one and only son. And what is the most disturbing part of it is that this man has been told by his God to kill his son. This is one of the most disturbing scenes in this book right here called the Bible. And yet, as we're going to discover here just for the next few moments, this scene is actually one of the most disturbing and yet beautiful pictures of the God that this book presents. But we have to take a few steps back. You know, we're going to, the next few weeks as we gather together, we're going we're gonna to consider this idea that you've seen up on the screen. It's called God the Iconoclast. Have you ever heard that term before, iconoclast? What's an iconoclast? Anyone know? What's an iconoclast? Jim? Somebody who smashes icons. Somebody who topples images who tears them down because they represent false pictures of religion. And I want to propose to you that the God that stands behind this book right here called the Bible, the God who stands behind this book is an iconoclast. He is a God who seeks to topple our false images of who God is. So let's go back, let's go back, because... We're going we're gonna to leave this man, it's a, it's a revolting scene, but we're going to leave him standing right there with that knife ready to thrust into the side of his child. Because we need to take a few steps back. Can we do that together? I think you probably would want to. You see, this man is named Abraham. And he lived some 3,500 years ago, 4,000 years ago, in what is present-day Iraq. And the Bible tells the story of this man named Abraham where he just sort of comes up out of nowhere, as it were. We don't really know much about Abraham, but what we do learn is that God has a very interesting mission for him. And so we're going to look at what this ancient book says. Notice what it says in the book of Genesis, which is one of the books of this Bible. It says, God told Abraham, check this out, Leave your country, your family, and your father's home for a land 
that I will show you. So Abraham's there living in present-day Iraq, and he gets this strange, this strange command from God. He says, leave your family, leave your country, leave your father's home. Now, why is it that God tells him to do that? Check it out. God goes on to explain that he wants to do something with Abraham that has been unparalleled in human history. And that is, God told Abraham to go there. He says, I will make you a great nation and bless you. I'll make you famous. You'll be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you. Those who curse you, I'll curse. All the families of the earth will be blessed through you. So this is, a, this is an amazing promise that God gives to this man Abraham, or at least the God that is, that is presented in this book. God says, I want, I want to bless the world through you. I want, to, I want to bring a blessing to others. Now what that simply means is God was going to show his favor to Abraham. He was going to do nice things for him. He was going to be kind to him. He was going to... F- to to be gracious to him. But God had a specific purpose, and that was he wanted to bless Abraham so that Abraham could bless other people. And through Abraham's family, God would bless those others. But there was something that God needed to do in order to accomplish that, and that is he needed to have Abraham, what did it say at the beginning? To leave who? Leave his country leave his family, leave his father's home. That sounds like a a sort of a strange request, doesn't it? That sounds like a, a strange command that God gives Abraham. But check this out. Why is it that God told Abraham to do that? Notice what it says later on in this book. It says, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, long ago your ancestors, including Terah, who was the what? The father of Abraham and Nahor lived beyond the Euphrates River. Now check out what it says next. And they did what? And they worshipped other gods. You see, what God needed to do in order to use Abraham was he needed to take him out of his family context because his family had very unfortunate views of the gods. And so in order for God to use the God of this book, in order for God to use Abraham, he had to take Abraham out of those false ways of thinking, those false patterns of thinking, those false paradigms of thinking. And so God says, get out of your country, get out of your family, get out of your father's home. Now check this out. I was, uh, I was watching, I was driving along a few months ago, and I came across a, uh, a song by a guy by the name of Josh Gerald, and he's become one of my favorite uh, singers these days, but there's a song that he does, and it's called Born Again, very interesting title, and the, the words that he shared just resonated with me so deeply. He says, I'm my mother's child. I'm my father's son. It took me a while, but my time has come to what? To be born again. It it was particularly relevant to me because as I've been journeying in my faith experience, I look back at my own family life 
And I had some, I have some really, really awesome parents. Like, I have just been so incredibly fortunate and blessed to have amazing parents. But guess what? Here's a news flash. My parents aren't perfect. Anyone have perfect parents here? Ah, oh, I see. Okay, good job, Roland. Yeah. My parents are so amazingly awesome, but you know, there's some old patterns of thinking that I needed to be brought out of. And you know, my children, when they get older, guess what they're going to have to do? They're going to have to be brought out of old patterns and paradigms of thinking that I have taught them. Because I hate to break this to you, but I'm not perfect either. Did, did any of you know that yet? And so God tells Abraham, get out of the country, get out of your family, get out of your father's home, because in order for me to do what I'm trying to do with, for, and through you, you're going to have to leave the old paradigm behind. Now, it seems like a very, very strange and silly issue, but even the fact that I'm not wearing a suit today is an old pattern of thinking. An old, I, would, I know some of you don't want to agree with me, but an old superstition that is helping me realize that God is not a micromanager that he has to require me to wear a tie and a suit. God is trying, and and, and I know that's just a very simple example, but God is trying to bring Abraham out of the old patterns of thinking. He's not trying to bring Abraham away from his family to get away from God. God is calling Abraham out of his family so that he can move toward God. In fact, I want you to remember that. Check this out. God does not tell Abraham to separate from his family to move away from God, but to do what? To move toward God. See, I don't think we understand, fully appreciate the the terrible, toxic thinking that went on in Abraham's time when his families were serving these other gods. We We could just go all day talking about the ways in which the gods of those times outside of the Bible, the things that they required from people so that they could be happy with them. All these rituals and these prayers and these incantations and these, and these sacrifices that, that the gods around them required in order for, for them to be happy with the person. And I, I know that that is present in my own thinking. And so again, God is saying, you gotta, you got to move towards me. Now, there's a very unexpected way that this manifests itself. One day, Abraham eventually has a son, a son that he had long awaited for named Isaac. And uh, he, he brings that son up in, in faith. And then one day, God has this really, really strange request. God says to him, sometime later, God tested Abraham's faith. Abraham, God called. Yes, he replied, here I am. Take your son, your only son, yes, Isaac, whom you love so much, 
and go to the land of Moriah, go and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will show you. So what happens? The next morning, Abraham got up early. He saddled his donkey and took two of his servants with him along with his son Isaac. Then he chopped wood for a burnt offering and set out for the place God had told him about. This is one of the most troubling and deeply disturbing stories in the whole Bible. As a matter of fact, some people, like my friend there in that coffee shop in, 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 at Dartmouth College, could cite this as proof that the God that stands behind the Bible is a God that we should not serve and love and, and respect. Because how could a God ask a person to sacrifice, literally take the life of their child. Well, we're going to return to that in a moment. But we come back to that scene. When they arrived at the place where God had told him to go, Abraham built an altar and arranged the wood on it. Then he tied his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham picked up the knife kill his son as a sacrifice. And he's standing there over his son. And again, that's just freeze frame in our mind. Now, how could Abraham ever have gotten to that place? Some of us would like to say, well, if God tells me to kill my son, I'm just going to kill my son, right? What about you? Would you do it? Some people think, well, this caused me to be in a dilemma because if I am going to believe this book and I believe that God at one point asked somebody to kill their son, what about me today? But check this out. Remember how Abraham had to leave his family, leave his father's home, leave his country? It was because their understanding of the gods had become so messed up that they believed there were gods who asked them to sacrifice their children. And so God brings Abraham to that crucial moment. This is not a foreign idea to Abraham. This is something, oh, okay, yes, this is what gods require of us, to sacrifice our children. And so God brought Abraham to that crucial moment, and then as Abraham is lifting that knife, he all of a sudden hears a voice. Abraham, Abraham, put down your knife. Put down your knife. And then he hears over in a bush a lamb crying out. And he realizes, and God tells him, no, 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 don't sacrifice your child. Sacrifice the lamb that I have provided for you. You see, God was the one who actually provided the sacrifice. And he was bringing Abraham to that critical moment, that crucial moment. He had all this baggage, all this thinking, all of these old patterns and these old paradigms because Abraham believed that it was up to him to sacrifice for God. Abraham believed that it was his role to make God happy with him. But God is trying to tell Abraham, no, 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 you got it all wrong. I brought you to this crucial moment to understand that it is not about what you do for me. It is about what I do for you. 
He was totally changing his paradigm. You see, many religions the world over, even us Christians many times, we get into this pattern of thinking that it's all about making myself worthy, making my sacrifices for God, doing, doing great deeds and saying prayers and showing up every week to a, a building, to a church or a temple or wherever it is, and we think, oh, I'm doing this for God. God, God. In order for God to be happy with me, I'm doing this for him. And God says, no, 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 no. I am the one doing it for you. You see, that story of Abraham and his son Isaac was just a, a foreshadowing. Do you know what that means? It was like something that was just pointing to a greater reality because some 2,000 years later, there was another father and another son. You see, the Bible describes God as this family unit that comprises father, a son, and then a spirit. And, and, and God looked down on us human beings as we try to be good enough and as we try to do enough, and we try to be enough, and we, we go through all of our rituals, and we go through all of our prayers, and we go through all of our, our, our ways to make him happy with us, or sometimes we do it to make other people happy with us, right? That's how it shows up in my life the most, is I'm, I'm not always consciously thinking, oh, how can I make God happy with me? I'm thinking, how can I make my church members happy with me? What can I do to hustle to get their approval? And God gives us a bigger picture. Check out this verse. It's one of the most well-known verses in all of the Bible. This is how much God loved the world. He gave his son, his one and only son, and this is why, so that no one need be destroyed by believing in him, anyone, can have a whole and lasting life. God didn't go to all the trouble of sending his son merely to point an accusing finger, telling the world how bad it was. He came to help to put the world right again. Anyone who trusts in him is off the hook. We're acquitted. God doesn't look down upon us with anger and vengeance and like we need to be worthy. As a matter of fact, the Bible teaches false religion requires human sacrifice to attain worthiness. Christianity portrays divine sacrifice as demonstration of our worthiness. God, Father sent Son to die for us, to go to that other mountain, which was actually not too far from the mountain Abraham went to, and he, and he, and he died on a tree, the laughing stock of all the people around him, and God did it so that he could prove to us that we are actually worthy of his love. And every other false pattern of thinking says, no, no, I have to do something myself in order to get God happy with me. And God says, no, 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 I'm already happy with you. And I'll prove it to you by sacrificing myself. So you can leave the old patterns behind. You can leave the old paradigm behind. You can be embraced by this awesome news of my love for you. I love how 
This later writer puts it, Paul, he says, so what do you think with God on our side like this? How can we lose? If God's like, if he's on our side, how can we ever lose? If God didn't hesitate to put everything on the line for us, embracing our condition and exposing himself to the worst by sending his own son, is there anything else he wouldn't gladly and freely do for us? And who would dare tangle with God by messing with one of God's chosen? Like, you don't want to mess with God's chosen. That's all of us. You and I have been chosen by God. We are loved by him. We are blessed by him. We are cherished by him. Who would dare even to point a finger? The one who died for us? Who was raised to life for us? But after he died, he was raised back to life. And he went back up into heaven. He's presently... He's in the presence of God at this very moment. He's sticking up, sticking up for us. I love that. You and I get, I, I get down on myself a lot, and I speak bad of myself, and I accuse myself, and Jesus is up there. The Son is up there in heaven saying, no, 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 I'm sticking up for them. Those are my people. I love them. I gave my life for them. Do you, not think, do you think anyone is going to be able to drive a wedge between us and Christ's love for us? There is no way, not trouble, not hard times, not hatred, not hunger, not homelessness, not bullying threats, not backstabbing, not even the worst sins listed in the Bible. None of this phases us because Jesus loves us. I'm absolutely convinced that nothing, nothing living or dead, angelic or demonic, today or tomorrow, high or low, thinkable or unthinkable, absolutely nothing. Absolutely what? Nothing can get between us and God's love because of the way that Jesus, our master, has embraced us. Nothing, nothing can get between us. So do you need to be born again? Do you need to be born again? Do you need to leave the old patterns of thinking behind? You need to experience the embrace of this God who gave himself for us. Do you need to just accept that? And say, I'm tired of trying my hardest to be good. I'm not, I'm not going to hustle anymore for worthiness because God has demonstrated our worthiness by sending Jesus to die for us. I'm going to invite Ben and Emma and Alyssa and Aaron and Jim, we're going to come on up and we're going to close with one song that we're going to sing together. As you think about giving your heart, saying, here I am, I'm available. I want to be, I want to be embraced by you. And I want to allow that embrace to be extended to others because that's what God's trying to do. He's trying to increase our capacity to love and bless other people. And the only way that that can be experienced is if we understand his embrace for us. The deeper we understand God's character of love, the deeper we can love other people. Isn't that cool? Yeah. Let's, let's sing this song together.
Can we stand as we sing this together?